Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. I think we're going to find ourselves having a bit of a revival and then the economy run out of steam because there'll be too many bankruptcies, too many failures, too many uh, speculative bubbles failing and people being unable to pay their debts and down you go again. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash economicrockstar. There are over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle or any tablet or PC. This is a fantastic way to get through a book while on the go. Choose any book for free. Who says there's no such thing as a free lunch? I recommend a great economics book to get you started called Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. So get a book like this for free at audibletrial.com slash economicrockstar. Remember the E and the R for Economic Rockstar are capital letters. Hello, Frank Conway here, and you're listening to Economic Rockstar. I'm truly excited to have Professor Steve Keane join us today. My first impression of Professor Steve Keane is a cool guy with a great attitude that does not fit the typical stereotype of an academic, but this impression runs deeper in Steve, and his interpretive analysis of economics is quite different to the norm. Steve likes to be known socially as an anti-economist, and has spent 40 years fighting delusion in economics. That delusion has led us into a crisis, and Steve may have finally won his battle. Or has he? Steve is a professor of economics and head of Department of Economics, History and Politics at Kingston University in London. He is the winner of the Revere Award for being the economist who most convincingly warned of the economic crisis and whose work is most likely to prevent another one. He topped the poll beating Rubini, Schiller, Soros, Stiglitz and Krugman. Well, we have a great guest on our hands today. So, Steve, I've given our listeners a little overview about yourself. Could you tell me a little bit more? Yeah, well, the fundamental um, starting point of my breaking away from accepting what's uh, the dominant mainstream economics happened way back in 1971, a long time ago, when I was a first-year undergraduate student. And if you do conventional economics and you learn all the supply and demand analysis and the, uh, uh, the arguments about equilibrium and so on, one thing you accept is that the market works best if there's no interference, no unions, no monopolies, no government, etc., etc., and then in first year, uh, my lecturer then Frank Stilwell, is a professor of, now professor of political economy at Sydney University, explained what's called the theory of the second best to me. And that's the, the okay, this is the so-called ideal world. You know, you have no monopolies, uh, no, uh, no unions, perfect world. It works perfectly. What happens if you actually live in the real world where you have both trade unions and monopolies? Does getting rid of one move you one step better closer to this perfect world? And according to what's called the theory of the second best, which is mainstream economics, the answer was no. If you have both of them and you get rid of one of them, you'll make the situation worse socially. you make welfare worse. And I thought, this is ridiculous because here's a very strong conclusion of the theory and you'll admit a bit of reality and the conclusion goes in the opposite direction. And I thought, there's got to be something wrong with an economic theory that behaves that way. So that's the beginning of me deciding ultimately that I'd rather call myself an anti-economist than an economist because what we get in conventional theory is something which is, it's quite the old American humorist uh, mention, neat, plausible, and wrong. And what I've been really doing ever since is pointing it out to people and saying we need an economics which might not be neat, so it has to be plausible, but certainly needs to be right. And, uh, you know, you don't get listened to when the economy appears to be working well. So I knew the only chance to uh, make a, a breakthrough was to time a critique of conventional economics with an economic crisis, and of course along comes 2007, 2008. 
Can I take you back to maybe your early years and maybe in college, if you don't mind? Yes. Because you would have done economics back then as well. And I'm sure systems or economies at that particular point of time were maybe at times quite similar. We have the rise of neoclassical economics, and that would mm. have been pretty much taught in a lot of schools in the United States, Australia, the UK, Ireland. Mm. What kind of person were you as a student? Were you a revolutionary back then as you are today? No, no, I was actually a complete believer in conventional economics. I thought it made complete sense. And uh, as I mentioned in debunking economics, is in the first year essay somewhere where I argued for the abolition of trade unions and monopolies. Thank God nobody's found a copy of it. I'd be embarrassed to read what I wrote back then. But I actually completely accepted the theory. So in that sense, I understand um, how people who still believe the theory do believe it because what it does is it basically gives you a vision of a perfect world. Because in, in a sense, uh, the, the market economy vision you get in conventional economic theory is a system which works perfectly with no coordination. So it's a, and also it's a system in which people earn what they are entitled to earn. So it's a meritocracy with no uh, power structure, no control. It's the ultimate definition of a nirvana. And if you believe that that's actually an accurate description of what a market economy can be, then you end up being a zealot about it. And I was in my first year. Can I also ask about work that you're currently doing at the moment in terms of trying to get the whole thinking of economics more, your own thinking of economics more in the mainstream? Uh, well, the, the, what I've, the, the main um, thing I'm trying to do is to shift um, the thinking about what the economy's fundamental nature is because the conventional economic theory argues the economy is a fundamentally stable system that if it's in equilibrium and gets disturbed, it'll return to equilibrium. And it's one in which uh, money, banks and debt play no role at all. Fundamentally, you can ignore the financial system and understand the economy perfectly well. I think both of those are completely delusional. And the far more sensible starting point is to say the economy is inherently unstable, where that is not necessarily a bad thing. A lot of the creativity in capitalism comes out of instability because only in a a system where there's instability, where there's a a potential uh, change to occur, do you get innovation taking place? So it's not necessarily a negative to say capitalism is unstable, but also to say that it's fundamentally financial and monetary and you can't understand capitalism without understanding banks, debt and money. And trying to do so is like trying to understand birds while ignoring that they have wings. So that those are the two major shifts to get us to accept a non-equilibrium vision of the economy and then to include banks, debt and money and how we analyse the macro economy. And... This is really trying to get economics to catch up with the, with the late 20th century because its approach of seeing the economy as being in equilibrium and thinking you can only model a system that's in equilibrium dates back to the middle of the 19th century. And all the genuine sciences uh, from physics, chemistry, biology, um, uh, meteorology and so on, except that complex systems like the economy are out of equilibrium. Their dynamics are described by processes that, that, that take it away from equilibrium rather than pushing towards them. And you have to understand the, uh, the system that way. So economics is resisting modern science, and I'm trying to drag it in that direction. Just going back to the beginning of all that, when you were talking about supply and demand at yeah. a micro level, I suppose economics comes from the whole idea of reductionism in terms of yeah. looking at the whole large-scale system in terms of the macroeconomy. 
and going back to maybe the foundations where we have micro. So the whole idea of um, your microeconomic supply and demand and equilibrium found at that particular intersection point can be brought forward to look at aggregate supply, aggregate demand models? That's what they believe. In fact, they've proven that that's not the case. And uh, this, this is commonplace in genuine sciences. I'll give you the best possible illustration I can give of that. Uh, it comes from an article by a physics Nobel laureate called Philip Anderson back in the uh, 1960s, I think it was. And the title of the paper is More is Different. In other words, what he was arguing was that you, reductionism fails when you get complex systems so that you can't understand a complex system by breaking it down to its parts and then trying to add it up from those parts and get and reconstruct the whole. And uh, in that he said that one of the classic examples is if, if that you reductionism fails because a complex system has behaviours which occur at the level of the interaction of the components of that system it can't be understood from the components alone. And take the example of biology. If it were true that you could construct uh, a high-level science like macroeconomics from micro, it would also be true you could construct a high-level science like biology from chemistry. Now, that would mean that the typical um, biology exam question would say, take these chemicals and create life. And we know that's impossible in biology. Nobody even imagines you can do that. But this fallacy that uh, Anderson described as constructivism, arguing you can construct an upper level from a lower level, is rampant in economics, but only in economics. So other sciences or genuine sciences have realised you can't do that. And the, the funny thing is conventional economics has actually proven this because um, one of the important elements of mathematical economics in the 60s and 70s was the question of if you start with a whole lot of individual consumers who all obey what they call the law of demand, so their demand for a good falls as its price rises, if you take a whole lot of consumers like that and you add them up their demand for for, 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 in a multi-commodity world, uh, do you get a downward-sloping market demand curve in each and every of those markets? And the answer was no, you don't. You can get any shape you can draw using a polynomial. Mm-hmm. You know, that includes X squared, for example, which is obviously not the shape of a demand curve, which is supposed to be have, have a negative slope. So the, the theoreticians themselves proved that emergent properties apply even in, my, in neoclassical micro. But rather than taking that seriously, they invented this mythology of what they called the representative agent. And that is just a totally ignorant uh, reaction to their own discovery that they cannot aggregate properly. Who is at fault? Like, where did the foundations lay here in terms of identifying the world we live in as a linear world with all of these assumptions? Yeah, to explain it certainly is linear thinking. I, I think it's just out of it. It's it's out of the desire to prove that this ideal world exists, so that you can have a system that has no government, no power, and harmoniously self manages. And that's such a strong vision that when you find, in fact, that you've proven that can't happen, start working logically from your own premises, you find that you've actually contradicted yourself. Then you have one of two reactions. You can either say, oh, dear, that's a problem, that's a pity, let's abandon it and reprove we can't use that foundation. Let's either move to a new foundation or um, accept that problem and, 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 and deal with it inside the discipline, or let's bury the result. And uh, my favorite analogy here is what happened with the Pythagoreans because because an essential part of the belief of the Pythagorean school was that all numbers are rational. 
In other words, you can describe every number uh, as a ratio of two, two, two integers. And this is, we now know, of course, that's, that's false. The square root of two is an irrational number. It can't be described as a ratio of two, of two, of two integers. And this was first proven by a Pythagorean, one of the followers of Pythagoras, on a boat trip across the Mediterranean. And the reaction of his fellows was to drown him. Now, I think, in effect, neoclassical economics has done the same thing. They wanted to prove you could derive a downward-sloping market demand curve from individuals that had downward-sloping market demand curves. They proved that you couldn't, and rather than drowning the individuals who proved that, it was Sonnenschein, Mantel, and Debreu, they drowned the result in this myth of the representative agent. And this is, to me, even though they like to pretend that they're mathematical, that, to me, is a fundamentally anti-mathematical thing to do. A lot of these models tend to try to create the equilibrium, maybe based on probability analysis as well. And a lot of these models also tend to exclude the human element or the behaviors of humans because we have a complexity about us that's very hard to derive mathematically or even put into a formulation. Kind of the problems lie maybe, personally, I think anyway, in terms of trying to quantify how we actually behave or react. Yeah, I think it's actually the whole idea you've got to start from individual agents and add up that's the problem uh, because that perspective is very peculiar to economics. So many other disciplines start from an aggregate level and then talk about aggregate behaviour. Economists try to start from an individual and derive the aggregate from it and therefore it's absolutely essential for them that they can derive a mathematical expression of individual behaviour which can be aggregated, and they thought they'd done that. Of course, they haven't. But the stylized view that they built about rational economic behaviour and the whole axioms of revealed preference and all that uh, stuff from Samuelson has become ingrained. And then when they look at behavioural research, where they see that, in fact, uh, there's no way people behave according to that model, they look at it and say, oh, yes, but we can't take that into account because we can't derive a mathematical aggregation of that. So therefore, let's ignore it, even though they've already shown they can't derive a mathematical aggregation of their preferred theory either. So I think the whole area of trying to work from individuals up is a dead end. And one of the most sensible reactions to the discovery that they couldn't aggregate was by Alan Kerman in the paper called The Subtitled Emperor Has No Clothes. What he argued was that we have, we, the idea we have to start from the isolated individual is one we may have to abandon. We may have to start working instead at the level of groups that have socially cohesive behaviour. Now, fundamentally, that's what the classical school did when they worked in terms of social classes. In other words, it makes no sense at all to aggregate you and me with Bill Gates, but it makes plenty of sense to aggregate Bill Gates with Warren Buffett and you with me and therefore and say that there's for, you know, capitalist class behaviour, worker class behaviour banker class behaviour, and and then work at that social social interaction level rather than trying to work at the isolated individual. That's what I'm trying to do in my own work. I find it at times very difficult to lecture a lot of the microeconomics, such as perfect competition, monopoly. Mm. Uh, I, I honestly do find that difficult to teach because it's riddled with assumptions and we know that with assumptions that kind of t- takes away from the reality. And I know in your book, Debunking Economics, the Emperor Dethroned, you address a lot of the concepts in neoclassical economic theory, and you prefer to accept the ideas that we should have a more of a pluralist teaching in terms of economics. And personally, I favor that, but we kind of tend to be quite restricted in terms of the textbooks that are available out there for us. There are some better ones coming along. Neva Goodwin has one already. Uh, which is a pluralist textbook, and Jack Reardon is coming out with one uh, next year. So there's at least two which are friendly towards non-neoclassical views towards economics. So 
one thing I'm going to be trying to get my staff to do at Kingston is to adopt one of those textbooks uh, rather than ManQ, which I see as a dreadful book. And I'll encourage other universities to do the same thing. And at least there are at least about half a dozen universities in in, in England which are pluralist oriented. So hopefully we'll get those those uh, textbooks there. But um, yeah, a large part of the problem is how textbooks have sanitised all these mistakes in the in the discipline. So you can read a textbook like ManQ and think it all makes perfect logical sense. And yet, in fact, what Pank is doing is providing a, the classic airbrushing treatment. You think you're looking at a beautiful Kim Kardashian. You're actually looking at a, at a totally fictional vision of the economy where all the flaws, all the warts are completely hidden. If you could see what's actually there, you'd be horrified. Even the simple tables to try to derive the marginal revenue, marginal cost structure curves. Yeah, yeah. You know, the average I mean, cost, it, it, it seems too basic, too simple. Trying to teach that, saying that this is the way the companies yeah cost structures are formed and everybody yeah. has the I mean, perfect, what, compet- and perfect knowledge. What, yeah, I mean, it's all nonsense because for a start, we, we know that uh, in the, the vast majority of firms, when you ask them what their cost structure is like, they report constant or falling marginal cost. And Schraffer gave a good logical argument as to why that was the case back in the 1920s. Um, but the, the, the theory completely ignores that and they give you these toy examples of people producing lemonade on street corners and, you know, selling lemonade and increasing cost of production as they increase the number of lemonade uh, cups they sell. Totally childish examples. But if you go and do the research, uh, you find, in fact, that most firms have declining costs because they design their factories that way. You build a factory so that it works best at maximum capacity. And uh, the most recent discovery of this was by Alan Blinder, who's, of course, anything but a conservative, a radical economist. He was at one stage deputy president of the American Economic Association. He was a deputy chairman of the Federal Reserve as well. In his book, Asking About Prices, he he surveyed apparently something close to 15% of America's firms in terms of the scale, the size of the 15% of the firms responsible for 15% of America's GDP. So a seriously large sample of large corporations in the northeastern corner of the United States and he found that 89% of them said they had constant or falling marginal cost. Now, if we were actually a truly empirical discipline, we would be we're trying to work out models that explain production levels of firms that have diminishing marginal cost. Of course, we don't do anything like it. Is it acceptable, really, for us to be teaching these principles at a, an introductory level, like the neoclassical? Because if we bring in some of these complex models to try to explain the systems, it might put people off economics, or would we be better off eliminating uh, many people who wouldn't maybe be able to think conceptually in terms of these models? I, I think we have to teach all the current schools of thought, warts and all. It's, it's totally, it's mendacious to teach neoclassical economics the way it's taught right now. But you can also say that when you look at, say, some of the teaching of Marxian economics, people who believe in Marxian economics often skate over the technical problems and the labour theory of value. So it's not something I was blaming the neoclassicals for. People are wedded to their view of the world and they teach that as if there's no flaws with that view. And I think what we have to do, to be honest to economists, is to students to say, well, look, clearly the financial crisis showed that conventional economic theory doesn't understand the economy. Uh, so we have to teach it with its flaws, but we also have to teach the alternatives. And, of course, this is what hasn't been done for the last 40 years, really. Uh, the alternatives haven't got a look in. They've been driven out by a neoclassical orthodoxy. So 
yes, it's going to be difficult for students to cope with this because students coming from school normally think they're going to go and learn a, a discipline and go get a job in that area. So they come along to learn engineering because they believe they can learn what they get taught about engineering at university and apply for a job as an engineer, and they're right about engineering. They think about economics, and they're wrong. And we have to be honest that the economics doesn't give you the skills to know how the economy operates right now because it is dominated by rival schools of thought where the dominant one clearly has massive internal contradictions and, and fail to perceive the biggest economic event of the last 100 years. But the others don't, don't necessarily add up to a complete alternative either. So I have to say, look, this is a field where, as students, it's going to be confusing. But at the same time, if you realise the lack of certainty in economics and also realise what's offered by other approaches where economics hasn't probably, properly absorbed, like the complex systems work that I do and the evolutionary approaches and so on that apply in other sciences, uh, there's a lot of promise as well. And it can be up to you to change the nature of economics. So that's the positive method of saying you're going to be bloody confused learning it because you're going to realize that there are no answers. At the moment, a lecture module and one of the topics in it is the efficient market hypothesis. Yeah. But I graduate, I believe it's graduating anyway towards other uh, thoughts and that include maybe chaos theory, fractal market hypothesis yeah. by Mandelbrot. We have Nassim Taleb's Black Swan and George Soros theory of reflexivity. So yeah. I like to bring all of these new types of thinking in finance to try to kind of create that critical thinking and belief that, look, we're not living in a rational economy. There are irrational factors in humans that operate within these systems that actually cause yeah. fluctuations. and It's also the definition of rational. I mean, if you look at how neoclassical economics defines rational, uh, what they what they with rational expectations, there's a person who has a model that can accurately predict the future. Now, if you explain that to somebody and say, I want, to, I want you to give me a word that defines someone who has a model that lets them predict the future, and they would say, oh, you mean somebody who's capable of prophecy. You know, that's not rational. And in fact, if you read, um, what's his name, Robert Barrow, you'll find it in a 1984 paper, Robert Barrow talked about how one of the cleverest things about the rational expectations revolution was appropriating the word rational. That's actually what he said, appropriating the word rational. Um, meaning they stole it and changed its meaning but continued to use it. So it meant that anybody who tried to argue against them had to apparently be arguing for irrationality, which he said is an incredibly hard thing to do. Well, the way to respond to that is to say it's not the efficient market's hypothesis, it's the prophetic market's hypothesis. Because, if, again, if you read Sharp, you find that an essential part of his model to derive the capital asset pricing model is the argument that people can accurately predict uh, what's going to happen with share prices. Exactly. Given the CAPM model and the efficient market hypothesis, we know in hindsight, and it's happening so frequently, that there's no prediction and there's no efficiency there because more than likely there's mean reversion. Yeah. Again, you have a dynamic system more than a static system. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's, actually, there's another hypothesis called the inefficient markets hypothesis by a guy called Bob Hagen, which is much more realistic and shows that when you're, when you're looking at the market, it's the things the efficient markets hypothesis tells you you can't do, who shows you can do. So he says because there's such a focus on growth stocks and a tendency to buy popular stocks and drive their prices up to a level where they can't really sustain the performance that justifies that high price over the medium term, uh, you can actually find a portfolio of shares which have high returns and low volatility. And, the, and this is the sort of thing that effectively Warren Buffett does. And it, you buy stuff which is unpopular. 
because it's unpopular, you get a high, uh, high price, uh, earnings to price ratio out of it. And it's not particularly volatile because it's not being traded extensively. So you get lower volatility and higher returns. Can we just move away from the theoretical aspects and bring it more into the reality and kind of join them there? Uh, I mentioned yeah. that you received a Revere Award for convincingly warning of an economic crisis prior to it occurring. Not many mm. people would have done that. And subsequently, you get a lot of papers trying to explain why these crises occurred. And what one mm-hmm. indicator? Was it a, uh, that the GDP indicator was the main one that actually sounded the alarm bells for you? Yeah. Yeah, like if you, because I'm working in Minsky's model of financial instability, private debt plays an essential role there. And fundamentally what Minsky argued was that corporations finance investment in excess of their retained earnings by borrowing money. And that's actually empirically verified by all people, Thammer and French back in 2000. So that means that there's a, uh, the change in debt is effectively the gap between investment and profits. And by including that in a model of the economy, uh, which I did back in 19... I wrote a model in 1992. It was published in 1995 in the Journal of Post-Keynesian Economics. That added the debt-to-GDP ratio as a fundamental system state of a monetary economy. So I've always been focusing upon that. And in 2005... I was asked to be an expert witness in an Australian case about predatory lending, and this was trying to overturn really appalling contracts that an ex-truck driver had been persuaded to uh, get into to try to hang onto his house. And um, the argument, you persuade a judge to not to enforce a contract, you've got to find reasons that the contract affects parties, third parties that aren't direct parties to the contract. And my argument was that, well, they've got, uh, when you have a level of debt like this being generated in individual contracts, it actually affects other people because the bankruptcy of those people mean they're forced to sell their property, which affects other people, and there are third parties badly affected by it. And in writing that expert witness case, I made a throwaway statement about how debt to GDP ratios have been rising exponentially. And being the expert, you can't rely upon hyperbole. So I thought I'd better go check it up and I'll, I'll get a result that shows that the ratio had been rising, but it won't be exponential. Then I plotted the debt to GDP ratio in Australia for the data that I had, which went back to about, I think, 1970. And it was a perfect exponential function. When I did the correlation coefficient on a simple exponential, it came out at 0.9912, which is a ludicrous yeah. correlation coefficient. Yeah. And uh, the only reason it wasn't one is there are a couple of hyper-exponential bubbles on that overall growth. Check the American data, uh, not quite as extreme but very close, about a 0.92 correlation going right back to 1954. And I looked at it and thought there's never been a level of debt this high in Australia or America since the Second World War. Uh, It can't continue growing. When the rate of growth of debt slows down, the, the, the demand will collapse at that point. Um, there's going to be a crisis. Somebody has to warn about it. And I'm probably the somebody. So that's, that was the actual mental process behind me deciding to come out and warn about a approaching crisis. And the debt to GDP ratio was the indicator that I focus upon that, of course, conventional economic theory completely ignores. Today, Ireland has a raw deal in terms of the austerity that's actually been imposed on us. Mm. Um, now, our debt to GDP ratio would not have been as significantly as high prior to this because of the Maastricht Treaty and so on. But at the moment, it's hitting about 123%. Um, so I think a lot of countries, even the United States, have a very high debt-to-GDP ratio. So You're, talking, you, you're talking government debt. Uh, so my focus is private, private debt. Private debt, okay. 
So yeah, your private debt was far higher because you had that gigantic housing boom. That's great. Everybody's borrowing money and trying to get rich by selling second-hand Irish houses to each other mm. or brand-new Irish houses, which is yet another problem. So that was all debt-financed, and the same thing applied in Spain, uh, in America as well, privately debt-financed bubbles. And, of course, what's happened with Ireland, which was uh, suicidal policy, the government adopted a lot of that private debt. So we, they pretty much rather, privatized the, the Yeah, the they public, they, 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 you couldn't call it publicized, what could you call no. it? They, uh, they converted private debt into a public responsibility when the debt should have been written off and the banks that uh, issued the debt should have been shut down. We should have borrowed the bondholders, really, shouldn't we? Yeah, the bondholders and equity holders and the managers who'd all have lost their shirts. Uh, the fact that it didn't happen. I mean, instead that the whole of Ireland loses its shirt. So does austerity work? If you want to cause a depression, that's a fantastic method. Yeah. But this, this, this is the thing I was just saying to a couple of some school students now. I spoke at a local school here. That um, simply just looking at the empirical record of what's happened in countries where austerity is being imposed versus countries where austerity hasn't been imposed, um, the just the dispassionate evidence of that is enough to say austerity is if you're trying to revive an economy it's a failure because of course austerity is being imposed courtesy of the Maastricht Treaty in Europe and you have Spain and Greece running unemployment rates of greater than 25 percent worse than they got during the Great Depression Italy of the same of the order of you know, I don't know the extra size figures but at 10 to 15 percent France about 12 uh, austerity has been an abject failure. Look in America, they talked austerity, but they can, you can never get anything passed through Congress to actually impose changes there. So the government basically passively, after an initial um, aggressive uh, stimulus program, then went into sort of passive stimulus mode. And the deficit in America hit four times the Maastricht ceiling. But the end result is America's unemployment level is now below 6% whereas it's twice that on average across Europe and four times that in Spain and Greece. So just empirically alone, it's a failure, but there's also logical reasons you can say that it's a failure. So this all could come back to being a member of the EU where we can't print our own money um, mm. and maybe create inflation if we had to try and, well, that's, I don't know if America is going to try and do that in order to reduce its borrowings. With that high level of debt as well, there's probably an instance where we could end up kind of slipping back into prolonged recession. Would that be your take on it? No, I, I, I think we simply have to realise we have to... The problem is caused by too much private debt and not enough government money creation. And we need to balance out the system. It's obviously arguing in favour of what I call a modern debt jubilee, where we use the capacity of the government and the central bank to create money. And if anybody... Uh, by give the money directly to the public, not not QE for the banks, but QE for the people. And when they get that money, if they've, if you're in debt, you're required to pay your debt down. So you just as a way to reduce the debt while not um, benefiting borrowers over savers, and get back to the stage where private debt is of the order of fifty percent of GDP, rather than as it is in the case of America, a hundred and fifty percent. In the case of England. Uh, now about 170%. I'm not sure how it is high it is in Ireland, but it's bound to be larger than your government debt level. Mm -hmm. And we're just proving that you can't carry uh, a functional economy, can't function with that high level of debt. Your jubilee, is that giving money to the citizens in order to spend? Yeah. I mean, the the people are starting to talk about it. They call the helicopter drop after Milton Friedman's appalling article on the optimum quantity of money. Um, I I, I would argue that 
which the government should be using the capacity it has to create money that way, but not for the sake of just simply giving money to people saying spending it, requiring that they reduce debt if they're in debt. And you also have to change the uh, rules about bank lending to stop banks just starting yet another asset bubble, which is what got us into trouble in the first place. I think the Australian government actually gave a thousand dollars, Australian dollars to every, every citizen back in 2008 in order to spend and stimulate the economy. Yeah, and it worked. I mean, that's one reason the Australian government, Australian economy didn't have a recession at the time of the global financial crisis. They also restarted a housing bubble. So the two factors together played a major role, but that, uh, basically gave anybody who, who over 18 with a pulse got a thousand dollars to spend. And the, the motto that the then Treasury director sold to the then Labor government was go hard, go early and go households. And it worked perfectly. Uh, you know, it has other spillover effects in terms of increasing our balance of tra- trade deficit and so on because we don't do a lot of manufacturing in Australia and a lot of that money was spent buying imported goods. But it did stimulate the economy and they can directly do that. That's the capacity the government actually has that it's deciding not to do for what are you know, very, very poor reasons based on very poor economic theory. As we all know, you're Australian. We can mm-hmm. tell from your accent. You've mm-hmm. recently moved to the UK. Yep. Have I read correctly recently that the reason why, well, not the reason why, but you moved to the UK was that your economics department shut down in Australia? Yeah. Um, my my university managers in their infinite wisdom decided to shut the department down and they told they announced the plan to do that two weeks before the final exams of 2012. Yeah. What was their reason? Oh, it was a, it's a knee-jerk reaction to a side effect of a change in government policy. The government decided that markets, of course, always work better when they're deregulated. So they decided to deregulate the education market and rather than requiring universities to announce a minimum uh, point score for your final high school exam uh, as, a, as an entry requirement they were, and, and having a maximum number of people they'd take in as well, they basically said open slather. And what that meant was students used to give like a list of about 10 uh, universities they were hoping to get into and they might put their top bids at, you know, like the Oxford and Cambridge equivalent in Australia, the Australian National University Sydney University, Melbourne University, that sort of thing. And then they have a whole, they use the other seven for the lower ranking universities that they had more of a chance to get into. But when the deregulation occurred, rather than students putting their bids distributing like that, they threw all of them at the big universities. So our apparent intake went from about 120 first year students to 20. And our reaction was, don't worry, because the big universities simply can't handle that big an influx. So rather than taking 100 of our potential students, they might take 10 of them. We might go from 120 to 110. We'll still have a reasonable intake. But the university's decision was, oh, no, that's dangerous. We can't afford to lose money. We'll shut the department down. And the end result of that was that uh, this is all, I I call them bean-eating bean counters. It's my opinion of people who make decisions like that, all about the bottom line of the university rather than about what education is supposed to be. And um, the end result was the university, rather than having, having it with a budget of $450 million, uh, it declared a $50 million surplus. It wasn't exactly near the breadline. In fact, it was, in one sense, government money they should have spent that they didn't. So, but this is just the sort of decision-making that seems to apply. And I, I hear that at Sussex University at one stage in, uh, in England, the uh, vice-chancellor decided to shut the chemistry department down because it wasn't making money. Uh, despite the fact that it had two Nobel Prize winners on staff. That didn't actually happen in the, in the end, apparently. But um, 
you, you need people making decisions about education based on cash flow rather than based on human, human learning. And I think that's one of the areas where we simply can't let naive market type views determine what we teach. Kingston then was your calling. They got in touch. Were they always and had the ideas of taking on this pluralist ideas in terms of economics, or was that something you brought to the table? No, they've got a long history of that. They go right back to the 1970s. They had a pluralist uh, orientation back then. Lost it for a short while, but they've re- they re-established it before I turned up on staff. So there's been a strong focus of, of pluralism at Kingston for a long, long time. And it's rather lucky in that sense because you know, other universities like uh, Cambridge for example, went very, very much mainstream, really minimised the extent to which they taught non-orthodox views. And then along comes the crisis. Well, they're not prepared to be able to teach an alternative. They don't have staff who know what the alternative is, Uh, whereas Kingston always had it, and then they decided to build on that by inviting me to be head of school. Because it makes a better economist, I think. Yeah, I mean, it makes you... If economics was like physics... Mm-hmm. And there was a you know, well-defined set of theories which you had to learn. Um, and, and, and the physicists, economists behaved like physicists and admitted their problems. So physicists quite happily admitted to first-year students that they can't re- yet reconcile the theory of relativity with the theory of quantum mechanics. Then this would not be a problem. But because economists, A, don't know some of the flaws in their own theory, and B, don't know that there are alternatives, and C, suppress alternatives, it ends up being a very indoctrination-oriented approach to education rather than actually teaching and learning. I liken pluralist teachings and learning to mixed martial arts. Uh, We have a great fighter here in Ireland called Conor McGregor, Mm -hmm. and his approach to learning to be a fighter and to be number one in ultimate fighting championship is to learn all the disciplines, Brazilian Mm -hmm. jiu-jitsu, karate, Muay Thai, and so on, and that makes him an all-round fighter, and he's learning more disciplines, and he he sees the strengths and maybe the possible weaknesses in each of these disciplines. He becomes a better all-round fighter, and I think that's that's the whole idea. What Kingston are actually doing is to develop that type of thinking and that person and over time you'll end up with Nobel laureates I certainly hope so I mean there's certainly plenty of room for it because economic theory is so completely disjointed from the economy itself that there's plenty of room to develop an alternative and if you look at people like Oliver Olivia Blanchard who um, was he was a you know chief economic advisor for the IMF he's had all sorts of official roles he was also the founding editor of the American Economic Review Macro and very much somebody who's convinced that macro was in a good state and economics was all sensible, et cetera, et cetera, and quite triumphalist before the crisis hit. He's now recently published a paper where he admits that uh, Frank Hahn uh, used to joke about his silly little linear models, meaning the Blanchard's models, and Blanchard is now saying that the lesson for the, from the financial crisis is that we should stay away from dark corners. Now, that's pretty hard to say when you don't even know where the dark corners are. So, but nonetheless, at least he's admitting uncertainty about the nature of economics. And that's just what I wish the profession would admit in general. It has to be humble. And it's, it's earned the right to be humble, not to be triumphalist. And it therefore has earned the right to teach all the approaches to the discipline rather than just having a monopoly of one view. And do you have any views yourself in terms of where the economy is going to go regarding maybe Europe or the UK or the United States? Because I see the, the whole problem is driven by excessive level of private debt. And we've actually had a, had a very limited level of deleveraging. For example, in America, the, uh, the private sector debt has reduced from about 100. And, it's, it's the most recent figures. They've actually changed how they record business debt, which makes it complicated. 
you go back over time, but they've gone from a recorded level of 170% of GDP down to about 145%. Now, that is still, when you look at comparable figures, far more debt than actually triggered the Great Depression. So we're trying to revive from a level which led to, which led to the biggest crisis ever. And I think we're going to find ourselves having a bit of a revival and then the economy run out of steam because there'll be too many bankruptcies, too many failures, too many uh, speculative bubbles failing and people being unable to pay their debts and down you go again. And this has been the history of Japan for the last 25 years. Yeah. People focus upon the government debt level, which has risen in, in every attempt to try to reboost the economy. But they've ignored the fact that, in fact, there was a private debt bubble that got uh, Japan to this crisis in the first place back in the 1980s, and they've haven't they still haven't reduced the level of private debt sufficiently to get it to be a minimal burden on the economy and let economic growth start occurring once more. So I can see us being caught in that same trap of a bit of a revival, then it peters out, another revival with government policy, then it peters out, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I see a period of sort of alternating stagnation and then policy-driven growth for a while, then more stagnation. You're doing your bit in order to teach people at a pedagogical level the whole idea of economics through a Kickstarter campaign that you're running at the moment, the product that you're actually selling. It's called Crash Boom Pop. This came out. This came to me rather than from me because uh, I got approached by a cartoonist, Miguel Guerra, to produce a cartoon book of debunking economics. And he's got himself and his wife, Susie Diaz, who's a layout artist, working with a blogger, a Canadian blogger called Genevieve Tran, and they're going to write a cartoon a book, or they call a graphic novel version of debunking economics, with the first issue being on money, and the overall title being Crash, Boom, Pop. And Miguel draws to Marvel comic standards, and, they're, and Genevieve's a great writer as well. So I expect to see a, a lively visual explanation of the critiques of economics and alternative ways to think about it and how money is actually created and so on, uh, that I think will be a lot more accessible than debunking economics, even though I tried as hard as I could to make uh, that uh, easy to read. It's still you know, a very challenging and a very heavy, very text-heavy book. So here's a chance to try to make the critical views on economics accessible through a cartoon book. I've seen some of the illustrations and they're absolutely fascinating. Yeah, he's a brilliant drawer. I mean, he just, he, I, one thing I can't do is draw or paint. And to see what Miguel does is just breathtaking. It's, the the calibre of his art is fantastic. On episode seven of the Economic Rockstar podcast, I had a comedian, Andrew Heaton, and he's delivering the message of economics. He himself is, a, as he puts it, libertarianism and an Austrian and he, he's kind of almost like a pluralist as well. And he's taken a lot of these arguments and he does say it's a dismal science, quoting Keynes, but he believes mm. that he can actually bring a smile to people's faces through comedy and they are, learn the whole concepts and maybe the weaknesses of some of these economic theories to, to a broader audience. And it's more appreciative, I suppose. Your know, comedy is definitely, and economics deserves comedy. You, you, you have a great T-shirt with Keynes on the front of it. So, in a way, you are a Keynesian. Keynesians are well, the Americans have bastardized, like they bastardized a lot of other words. Um, so, if you if you read the Keynes that I base my work on, which really Keynes in the nineteen thirty seven, not not the general theory, but the papers he wrote in nineteen thirty seven, read that, and I think a lot of Austrians will think they're reading Hayek. There's uh, Keynes has been completely bastardized. What people, when they say Keynesian, they mean Samuelsonian. Keynes, according to neo-Americans, is what Samuelson said Keynes said, which was nothing 
Well, it was a particularly stylized version of Thumb's Things You Could Pull Out of the General Theory, which really were a continuation of the views Keynes had before he started changing his mind and breaking away from the Marshallian and Walrasian foundations that he was exposed to when he was a student. So uh, uh, my vision of who Keynes is is very different to the one that you know, Paul Krugman has, obviously, and uh, people, when they use Keynesian as a swear word, uh, very different to that as well. Uh, and Krugman, he, he's a typical neoclassical economist or maybe a neo-Keynesian. Well, um, he's a neo-Hicksian, but the funny thing is uh, John Hicks, whom he bases his work on, he's, he's a great fan of the ISLM model. Hicks disowned the ISLM model in 1980-81 in a wonderful paper published in the Journal of Post-Keynesian Economics entitled ISLM and Explanation. And if you read it, I think it's actually better titled ISLM and Apology, because he admits, in fact, that ISLM was not uh, a model he found in the general theory. It's a model he had in his head in 1933. And he, when he wrote the general, his so-called review of the general theory, he really presented his model, not what he read when he read the general theory. You were the mentor to the Crash Boom Pop graphic mm -hmm. novel. Uh, how important do you feel mentoring is, and have you had a mentor in the past that helped you maybe develop your thinking? Oh, your thinking? Well, for sure. I mean, uh, Frank Stillwell played an important role for me as an undergraduate student. Um, Ted Wilwright, who was, was a brilliant raconteur as well as a brilliant historian of economic thought, also played an essential role. And in a sense, I was mentored by a book. There's a wonderful book uh, out of print now called Dynamic Economic Systems by a guy called John Blatt. Uh, who was a professor of applied mathematics and twice nominated for the Nobel Prize in physics. And his book, I think, was a, a mentoring experience for me, even though I never met the man. Apparently, he was actually a pretty, <laughs> pretty uh, arrogant man, from what I'm told. But the book is written so well, it's got a mentoring effect in how I approached the way that I did my economics. So his mentoring is extremely important. And I have you know, a number of students that I've played that role for. I think it's important not just in terms of intellectual mentoring, it's also partly an emotional thing because going through a learning process with something like economics is not just an intellectual exercise, it's also an emotional one. Again, just bringing up Andrew Heaton, he sees a lot of economics in movies too. He hosts a podcast called Econ Pop. Do you find maybe some economics in one of your favorite programs, Monty Python? <laughs> I just find humour inside Monty Python. But, of course, Monty Python and Terry Jones, as uh, people don't remember Terry Jones, he's the guy who plays uh, the mother of Brian in The Life of Brian. Uh, Terry's become a critic of mainstream economics, and he's got a book coming out as a movie, uh, which is now just being released, a, a, a docudrama sending up economics and talking about the financial crisis. I've forgotten its name, but it is pretty close to Boom Crash Pop. So um, Terry Jones and the Monty Python crew are doing their bit to send up economics as well. And it should be in a cinema and a TV screen near you pretty soon. I must reach out to Terry and um, see if he can actually speak to me and we might have a chat about yeah, it. Yeah, he'd love to. I'm sure he would. Uh, there's a guy called Theo Locken who's, the, who's the, uh, he's working uh, he's a professor in Amsterdam and he's been working with Terry on the on the whole show. So Theo Locken is the one to contact. Drop me an email and I'll give you the details. Oh, that'd be fantastic. Thanks very much, Steve. Just before we go, do you have any affirmations or a mantra or philosophy that you actually live by that helps you get through maybe your whole thinking? I know you just came back from the gym, if you don't mind me saying. Is that something that you actually need to do on a daily basis in order to clear your head and focus? Oh, yeah, and exercise, exercise is a major part of keeping my sanity. But if I had to think about students who found themselves regarding economic theories having holes in it and, and they're part of the pluralist movement, 
what I told them at the uh, SIPI meeting I went to a couple of months ago is that if you start to doubt economic theory, you'll be disparaged by some of your professors who say you just don't understand enough of the uh, information. You know, you haven't learned enough and you, uh, you, you know, you're naive about it, et cetera, et cetera. The more you learn, the more you'll understand we're right and you're wrong. I say to those students, trust your gut. If you have a gut reaction to this stuff and think it can't be right, your gut reaction is correct. I love that, feelings. Do you have any internet resource that you use or would like to share with our listeners? Well, the main thing is my blog, which I haven't actually treated all that well in recent years. There are a lot of reasons. There's too many other things happening. But debtdeflation.com slash blogs, that's my main uh, resource. And then, of course, my YouTube channel. So what I do is I put my, my, my lectures and talks up on YouTube. So if you search for Prof. Steve Keen in YouTube and search for debtdeflation.com slash blogs, That'll be a good start. And then there's one more group called Idea Economics. So ideaeconomics.org. Search for that as well. That's a not-for-profit in America that's trying to support the sort of work that I do and Anne Pettifors and Paul Unrod and so on, Michael Hudson. Uh, So uh, those are the two uh, avenues where you'll find a lot of, or three avenues for a lot of information, a lot of critical thought. I love your book, Debunking Economics. Thank do you, you. Do you have a recommended book that you would actually like to share with our economic rockstar listeners? Well, of course, I'll recommend Debunking Economics. Uh, also, um, I'd recommend a new one by George Cooper, which is called Money, Blood and Revolution, just come out. And that's a physicist uh, who used to work for Goldman Sachs, his perspective on economics. I think that's, that's extremely worthwhile. And the final one, uh, though it's out of print, you find it in university libraries, is that one I mentioned by John Blatt, Dynamic Economic Systems. I think if you read that, uh, you'll have a complete antidote to neoclassical economics. I'll put all of these books and resources on my website, economicrockstar.com. That'd be great. Steve, thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me on Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. You can find all the links to Steve on economicrockstar.com. Steve, you are an economic rockstar. Thank you for being so generous with your time. You're welcome, Frank. Thank you for joining me on Economic Rockstar. Would you like to be part of the Economic Rockstar community? Get free access to webinars, extra content and updates on free podcast episodes. Well, why not head over to economicrockstar.com and sign up to get access to this exclusive content. Only available to Economic Rockstar subscribers. See you next time. I said, I love the okay. T-shirt. It has stability on it, does it? Mm-hmm. Stability is destabilizing. A T-shirt from the Minsky campaign. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs>